goodness, His grace for believers' baptism, the opportunity that one can make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and follow the Lord through obedience and uh, through manifesting that faith through uh, baptism. What a blessing that is. Yeah, I want to say something. I know um, their testimonies are just uh, heartwarming whenever you get to see how God used that, but they both have testimonies of coming out of the Roman Catholic Church and where they were in, the, in, in, their, in their context, they were told and taught that faith was to be in the church and you're saved through the church. There is belief in Jesus Christ, of course. But I want to say something. I know that there are people who are Roman Catholic. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there are probably many who are putting faith in Christ, um, who are genuinely saved and belong to the Roman Catholic Church. But I also believe that there are many who believe that just because they're Baptist, that that makes them right as well, and it doesn't. There are many Baptists who think that they are saved because of their own religion and what they've created as a religion. But let's be clear. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. And that is how we are saved. And so I just want us to have that certainty and that clarity in our own hearts and minds as we think about how God saves people. Uh, it's many times in spite of what church we belong to or where we go uh, or in those things that have been in our lives. And so praise God those for, for those testimonies and His faithfulness to save. Uh, what a blessing uh, it is, uh, and especially a husband and wife uh, who have lived a majority of their life um, in religion and now getting to experience a relationship in Christ together. What a blessing that is. If you have your Bibles, look with me in Romans chapter 1, 24 through 28 is our text today. And the title of today's sermon is Exchanging the Truth for a Lie. Exchanging the Truth for a Lie. As we continue our study in the book of Romans, we will be amazed at how relevant these messages are in the year of 2023. 2,000 years after these letters were written, there is still so much in them, everything, every, every bit of the Scriptures are still relevant and prevalent in our lives today. We're going to see the same human depravity in the world 2,000 years ago that we see today. We're going to see the same struggles with sin, the same challenges to the faith. All of those things have always existed. And so it's very relevant as we go through this text. I want to also point out something as we, with regard to this topic that we're going to be dealing with today. And I gave a preface last week to those of you with children that last week we were dealing with idolatry. This week we are going to be dealing with homosexuality. I said we're going to be dealing with it the next two weeks, but I think we're going to try to fit it into one sermon. So we might be out of here by three o'clock this evening. But parents, just beware. We are dealing with a very sensitive topic, something that is very difficult to hear and very difficult to talk about. But I think there's another reality that we need to exist. There are many people in this room this morning who remember 
what coming out of the closet meant. There are those in this room who have been born since the year 2000 who have no idea what that means because it's been in vogue to be gay for the past, well, numerous years of many of our children's lives. It's normal for them to hear about homosexuality in a way that's different from many of you and how many of you have grown to learn about it because you have experienced, many of you have experienced a cultural shift. So I've done something. I've created kind of a timeline over the past 20 years, approximately, of some of the shifts and changes we've seen in our society. And I share this with you by way of fact and by way of helping us understand how we think and understand our own culture in dealing with this issue and subject. So, in the year 2000, Vermont became the first state in the United States to legalize civil unions, different from marriage. They legalized civil unions, the very first state. There wasn't a single, before 2000, not one single state recognized a union in any shape, form, or fashion between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. 2000, that changed. Vermont became the first state to legalize civil unions and registered partnerships between same-sex couples. In 2003, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that sodomy laws in the U.S. were unconstitutional. So up to 2003, there were sodomy laws. It was even, there were laws against practicing, in certain ways, these issue, this issue of homosexuality we're talking about today. In 2004, Massachusetts became the first state to legalize gay marriage. So now we're seeing a difference in from a shift from civil union to actual marriage between same-sex couples. In 2007, the Human Rights Campaign hosted the first national televised platform to discuss, at the time, only LGBT issues. Lots changed since then with the acronym. Six Democrat presidential candidates, including Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, attended while every Republican candidate declined. So you're seeing now a shift even in politics over this issue. In 2007, that happened. 2008, California approves Proposition 8, making same-sex marriage legal in California. In 2009, President Barack Obama signs a presidential memorandum allowing same-sex partners of federal employees to receive special benefits. In 2009, President Barack Obama expanded the 1969 federal hate crime law to include LGBT in 2010, the U.S. Senate votes to repeal the don't ask, don't tell policy, allowing gays and lesbians to serve openly in the military. In 2011, President Barack Obama rejected the Defense of Marriage Act and openly embraces homosexual marriage. In 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court declares same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. 15 years. 15 years. 2000, the first State was Vermont to recognize civil union. By 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court makes a decision and declares same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. Now, I'm going to stop there. And here's what I want to say. By the year 2015, from just 2000, in just a short period of time, by 2015, it was in vogue to be gay and support the LGBT, now Q+, community, 
And this nature of shift in leadership and culture has led to a substantial increase in both open and militant support for the LGBTQ plus community. This is our culture. This is our history. This is what our children have grown up in. This is what many of you have experienced the shift. Many of you remember what it was like before these laws, what it was like you know, you'd never heard, when my wife and I got married, my wife had never met a, a, or a seen open homosexuality. This was something that we didn't grow up with as opposed to our kids who are now growing up in this. Now, why do I point this out? I'm going to tell you why. Because the younger generation is going to think a lot differently about homosexuality than many of you. It's going to be different. Now, I'm going to just say this on the front end. Even those of you who come from a different culture may still think wrongly about homosexuality. For Christians, though, one of the, day, one, uh, one of the challenges we face today is the rise of support and justification of homosexuality that is coming from within many churches and denominations. For us today who adhere to Baptist doctrine, this has even reached our ranks Several Baptist entities, such as the ABC, the American Baptist Churches, the Progressive National Baptist Convention, the National Baptist Convention, and the one closest to the Southern Baptist Convention, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, have all openly affirmed, these are all Baptist entities, and they have all openly affirmed the LGBTQ community. Just this past week, First Baptist Church of Richmond, Virginia, had a drag queen in their church leading a performance of arts and theater in front of their people in celebration, celebrating diversity and, and embracing, again, open homosexuality or the LGBT community. That's within the Baptist ranks. By the way, First Baptist Church Memphis is another one. It's right here. Many independent Catholics, the United Methodist Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Global Alliance of Pentecostals, Presbyterian Church USA, and many other religious entities have openly and are openly affirming and embracing the LGBTQ community. But here's the rub. Many religious entities are doing so. They're affirming the LGBTQ community through biblical interpretation or through a certain biblical interpretation. They're using the Bible to justify their support. Now, this isn't anything new. And if we just separate our thoughts for a moment from homosexuality, this happens on every single spectrum where people use the Bible to justify almost anything and everything they want to. Now, the reason that they do that, and let me give you, let me give you a definition anyway, it's called eisegesis. And eisegesis is the method of interpretation where we take our thoughts and our views and our beliefs and we put them onto the text. In other words, we are making the scriptures say what we want them to say. That's called eisegesis. And let me just say something. Even many of you fall into this trap. I've seen some people use the verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me to be able to lift a car above their head. You can't do that. That's taking the text out of its context and using it for your own belief or agenda. That's called eisegesis. What we practice here at Calvary is called exegesis. Exegesis is very close to expository preaching. Ex means to come out of, meaning that we are getting out of the text the message of God's word so that it will change the way that we believe. 
In other words, we don't take our thoughts and ideas to the text so that we can understand what it says. We get our ideas from the text so that we can know how to think properly. That's the difference of interpretation. And by the way, the difference of interpretation is based on how you view scripture. If you view the Bible as just something written by men and it's not authoritative, then eisegesis is perfectly okay for you. But if you believe the Bible is God's holy word and it's authoritative, it will change the way you interpret it. Our desire today is so that the Bible will inform us so that it can transform us. We are here this morning to develop a biblical view of the world rather than a worldly view of the Bible. That's the difference between us and many churches. Now let me give several points of clarification as we begin. It is not my goal to persuade you to believe that homosexual behavior is wrong. It's not my goal. Even though it is wrong, a person can believe that homosexuality is wrong and still not be a Christian. There are plenty of people today who believe, millions and millions of people today, who believe that homosexuality is wrong, but they are not a Christian. So my goal, my aim is a lot higher because it will do you no good to believe something is wrong and lose your own soul. So I'm not trying to convince you that homosexuality is wrong. It's not my goal. If you struggle with homosexual tendencies, my goal is not to give you any therapy this morning or to try to change you or any of those things. My goal is higher than that. My goal is to help you transform the way you think about and understand God. That's what preaching is for. It helps us to understand who God is. My goal is to help us as a church to put the glory of God back in the center of reality because when the glory of God is center, everything, even our thoughts, revolve around that. We are changed whenever the glory of God is central in our lives. Please hear this. The root of every problem in the world is that the human race has substituted the glory of God for other things. We have seen this in our culture. Our culture is doing this. God is being replaced by politics. God is being replaced by education. God is being replaced by science. God is being replaced by social norms. And even in many of our churches, God is being replaced. The glory of God is being replaced through emotionalism and entertainment and self-help. Uh, type sermons. That's what many of our churches have succumbed to. As a result of this, God has simply handed humanity over to the desires of their own hearts to do exactly what they want to do in their depravity. And it's nothing new today. This has been going on for years. This is what God did from the very beginning. You all talk about, you want to talk about free will. Free will is the most dangerous thing in the world to me. Because God is allowing you to be absolutely free in your depravity. And folks, I'm going to tell you, it never turns out good. It's an allowance. It's an allowance. So we're going to get into our text this morning. And now then that I've been forthright and very forceful in my introduction, I want you to just understand, I am setting the stage for the seriousness of the topic, but not so much what many of you might think from my tone, the intent of my own heart. Because my heart bleeds for all people who are trapped in sin, regardless of what sin that is. 
Sin is serious to God. We've been going through this. It's a very serious issue. And so as we look at Romans chapter one, let's start back a little bit further in Romans chapter 121. And now then let's let the text begin to inform us and transform us as we think about God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Would you pay attention, first of all, to something very important here as we look at this text? God's judgment is not in the form of punishment, it's in the form of allowance. God's judgment isn't in the form of punishment, and it is. We're going to see punishment is connected to a, it's a judgment on a judgment. But judgment here is in the form of allowance. Let's go back before 2000, 1987. 1987, hundreds of thousands of activists took part in the National March on Washington, demanding that President Ronald Reagan at the time address the AIDS crisis. AIDS had quickly become a national and global pandemic or epidemic spreading rampantly through the gay and lesbian communities. This epidemic was made a national crisis in 1988. And in 1988, the CDC sent out educational pamphlets on AIDS to every single household in America. People got those pamphlets. And many people begin to say, this is the judgment of God on the homosexual community. Now, is it an issue? Yes. Is it a form of judgment? Yes. But it's important that we get this. Look at what Paul says in verse 24. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. What is God doing here? What is the giving up? That's the judgment. The judgment is allowing you to act out what your heart desires. That's what this is. When you and I see, by the way, let's expand this a little bit. When we see somebody murder, do you know what that is? It's the judgment of God that is allowing people to act out what's in their heart. When you see someone commit adultery, it is the allowance of someone getting to act out what is in their heart. It is a form of judgment that you are allowed to act out what is in your heart. He's saying God has given them over. But this is very specific. To bring you back into what Paul is talking about, because the dishonoring of the body that Paul has in mind here in verse 24 is specifically homosexual behavior. 
Paul is talking about the sexual disordering of fallen humanity, especially homosexuality. It doesn't dismiss heterosexual sins. He's not saying that homosexuality is the only sexual sin. But he's saying here specifically and especially, that's what you see. This sexual disordering is a direct result of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. It is the replacement of God's glory. It is where God is not central and God is turning people over to allow them, to let them reign and rule in their own will to do whatever they please. I want you to know something. There is very little today that is restraining people from doing whatever they want to do. What we see today is mostly influence, still influences that exist in society that are restraining. There are still people who have morals and convictions. The church in and of itself is still a restraint on what could be in society. And you go to other countries, go to other societies and look and see what it looks like without the church and you will see no moral restraint in many of those contexts. So, he's saying here, this is the judgment. God is handing us over to what we want to do. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their Error. Romans 1.27 may be the verse that we would go to to make a case that sexually transmitted disease is a judgment upon a judgment. They are receiving the due penalty in themselves for their actions. Their will is to do whatever they want to do. God allows them to be able to do whatever they want to do in their depravity. And then as a result of that, there is judgment upon judgment. This is where sexually transmitted diseases come from. My granddaddy said that culture got it wrong when they started talking about condoms and safe sex. He said, safe sex is a wedding ring. That's what God intended. Sex is not for love, it's for marriage and a very particular type of of marriage within God's design. That's important as we think about it because notice how Paul identifies homosexual behavior. It is defined as contrary to nature. See what it says there in the text. It is contrary to nature. They were given over to do what is contrary to nature. Let me define that. Contrary to nature means unnatural. It means not normal. Not normal. Listen to this quote. In a world where God is created as the creator and designer of life, natural must mean in agreement with God's purpose and design. What is natural? What is normal? You and I talk about this a lot in conversation. Nothing's normal anymore. What defines normal? What defines normal is God's design. What defines nature is what's natural is God's design. Anything thus acting outside of God's design is unnatural. It's not normal. Shouldn't be this way. Not supposed to be that way. Whenever they were trying to justify divorce to Jesus, Jesus said from the beginning of time, it wasn't intended to be this way. 
That wasn't God's design. And so, it's not normal. We've made it normal. We've normalized what shouldn't be normalized. When God created the first humans, in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 2, He declared them male and female before then, but specifically one of the things we see here in Genesis 5-2 was a declarative position that God placed upon His created people. Adam and Eve was the first man, or Adam was the first man, Eve was the first woman, and He declared them so. In other words, God determined sex. And He placed woman upon Eve, male upon Adam, He made them male and female. He created he them. That's how God designed men. By the way, only two sexes, male and female. This is our basic presupposition as people who hold to the scripture that God, this was God's design. This was his sexual orientation. This was his idea, male and female. It's a declarative order of creation. God affirmed them not only male and female, but he declared them husband and wife. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, 24 and 25, where he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. In this declarative statement, the very first wedding ceremony between a man and a woman, God declared them husband and wife. God performed the first ceremony. Jesus would later on go on to say what God has put together, let not man tear apart. Both the design And the very premise or the very nature of that design, even the idea of that design, it all comes from God. He's the originator. He's the creator. He's the designer. Male, female, married to one another. And Jesus confirms that again in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 8. Therefore, any physical or sexual relationship that exists outside of God's design should be considered unnatural. Not normal. Not according to nature. I want you to see that homosexuality is a disordering of human sex. It is directly related to rejecting God as the creator. In other words, when one rejects God as the creator, it is a rejection of any type of authority. It is a rejection of anybody that's going to tell me what to do with my body. It's my body, my right. This can extend on into abortion. This can extend on to uh, fornication. This can extend into adultery. This can extend into anything you want it to be that's immoral. It is a refusal to accept any moral culpability on action or action or behavior in your life. It is a rejection of God. And some people might say, well, I believe in God. If you say you believe in God and reject the teaching of God, you reject God. You're rejecting Him. You're rejecting His instructions. It's an authority issue. It's rebellion. Now, there is an argument that we need to address here as we look at this text. There are some who try to justify homosexual behavior from this text by saying that Paul is talking not to homosexual men and women, but to heterosexual men and women. And by definition, for those of you who may be younger, a heterosexual is someone who is attracted to the opposite sex, a man attracted to a woman, a woman attracted to a man. And so there are many who justify homosexuality from this passage because they say Paul is not telling homosexuals 
to, uh, that this is unnatural for them. He's saying to heterosexuals, it's only unnatural for you. In other words, someone might say it's natural or normal for a homosexual to be homosexual. It's unnatural for a heterosexual to be homosexual. The problem with this argument is that Paul is making it blatantly and abundantly clear that these were men who were consumed with passion for other men, and these were women who were consumed with passion for other women. Notice what it says in the text. They were consumed with passion for one another. In other words, these were not women going against their passions to be sexual with men so that they could be sexually, uh, be sexually involved with another woman. These were not men who were going against their desires to be sexual with uh, women so that they could be sexual for men. They weren't going against their desires. They were going toward their desires. So no, these were not heterosexuals going against their heterosexuality. These were homosexuals. Men consumed with passion for other men. Women consumed with passion for other women. Now let me say this. It might feel natural. It really might. I, I'm not doubting that for one second. If a person has desires or passions toward the same sex, it can probably feel very normal and very natural to you. Those are legitimate feelings in the sense that you can actually feel that way. I don't doubt it one bit. That's not the same as saying I believe in a homosexual gene or some DNA that's part of your physiological makeup, but it is part of a moral attraction. So we're not doubting that. But here's what you also need to know. To act on those passions is to go against God's design. It is to act out against God. Look at this in sequence. Maybe this can help us understand Paul a little bit better as he's showing us a threefold sequence three times. We see it first in verse 23 through 24. Look at the sequence that's being presented. In verse 23, here's what you see. Human beings exchange God for what God has made. In other words, they prefer the creature or what is created over the creator. They're not worried about the creator. They just want his blessings. They want his goods. They will gladly accept all that God has given them, but not God. Step two, God hands us over. This is humans. God hands us over to what we prefer. We see that in verse 25. He hands us over to the lusts of our own hearts. What we want, he gives us over to that. And step three, we act out externally and bodily in uh, our sexual relations, a performance of the internal spiritual condition of our fallen humanness. So we see a rejection, a replacement of the glory of God, a rejection of the glory of God, a turning over and the acting out. Rejection, turning over, acting out. Rejection, turning over, acting out. But we don't just see it there. That continues on in verses 25 through 27 of our text. Look what it says right there. It says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up 
to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. You see the same trichotomy. Rejection of the truth for a lie. God turns them over. They act out. And you see the same thing in verse 28. Same threefold method or process. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, they ought, what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, and all of the others. What's happening? What is the real danger here? What's the real sin? You know, it's, easy, it's easy. It's really easy for people in religious piety to look at passages like this and, well, I'm not struggling with homosexuality. Homosexual is the sin of this passage. Homosexuality is not the sin of this passage. The sin of this passage is a rejection of the glory of God. The judgment of God is the acting out of your passions. It's the allowance for you to act within your depravity free of any restraint whatsoever. No conviction, no desire of, of pleasing God, no, no acknowledgement of the holiness of God, no care, no concern whatsoever None. And acting that out. Doing dishonorable things. Things that are not normal, things that are unnatural. But it feels natural, Brother Greg. Let me talk about that. Let's address the issue of natural tendencies. This is the, this is the term. Natural tendencies. It's, it's the tendency to do what feels right. It's the acting out of what feels normal, feels good. By the way, the message of today, if it feels good, do it. If you enjoy it, do it. By the way, that is a judgment phrase. <laughs> that is a phrase of judgment of God upon our culture. If it feels good, do it. I'm going to test that. I'm going to challenge that. You see, God's judgment is that He gave them over the lust of their hearts and their minds to do whatever was in their hearts and minds. Now let me say something because... It needs to be said. Everyone in this room is bent by sin towards some tendency of sin. You are bent towards some sin, some certain sin. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you have physically aggressive tendencies that might lead you to violent, violent outbursts. If you have physically lethargic tendencies that might lead you to laziness and neglect. You may feel frenetic tendencies which leads to workaholism. You may have tendencies toward pessimism that leads to suicidal thoughts. You may have anxious tendencies that lead you toward paranoia. You may have addictive tendencies that leads to alcoholism or gambling or drug abuse. You may have a tendency toward frustration that leads to outbursts of anger. Or you may have strong sexual desires or tendency toward uh, sexual desires that leads to lust and pornography and fornication, adultery or polygamy. Just because one is born with a tendency toward a particular sin, though, you need to get this, never justifies the behavior. If it ever does justify the behavior, we need to open up the prisons and let every prisoner walk free because they were just doing what felt normal to them in the moment. We can never come to a place as a society, as a people, and particularly as Christians, 
Where just because you have a particular bent toward a particular sin, that there is some justification in the sin because of how you feel. If a person murders someone, that person must be morally culpable, even if they were driven by some physically aggressive tendency. Let's even consider a heterosexual man or a woman this morning, but let's consider somebody, let's call him a man who is a heterosexual, meaning that he is attracted to the opposite sex. He's attracted to women. Let's say that this heterosexual man is married, but he still finds other women attractive. It's a natural desire. It's a natural tendency to look at women, to see their beauty. He's attracted to particular women, particular style of woman or, or class of woman or whatever. But it's just something in his nature that's bent and it feels natural and normal to him. But he's married. He goes outside of his marriage bonds to fulfill what's natural to him. Is he right? No. We would condemn that. And let me tell you something as Christians today who hold the scripture, we condemn all sexual sins. Just because a person feels like it's normal or it's a natural tendency in their life will never, ever, ever justify the behavior. I can't tell you the number of people I've sat down with in ministry over the past 20 plus years who have told me it just felt so right. I'm like, where are we going with this? Are you trying to justify it? One man left his wife for another woman because it felt so right. It was just doing what felt natural. We condemn that. We condemn adultery. We condemn fornication, sex outside of marriage. And all of these things, because just because you have a feeling, it never, ever, ever justifies the behavior. That's why I say all the time as Christians, we do not act on our feelings. We act on truth. We buffet ourselves. We beat ourselves into submission. We hold back and suppress some of those tendencies and those things that feel so right or feel so natural to us. We must, Paul even said, I have to buffet my body to beat it into subjection. He struggled too. So I'm not here to sit here and say that those who struggle with homosexual tendencies don't have a, legit, uh, a, a legitimate feeling, a tendency, even something that feels normal. But I am going to say the same thing to a homosexual as I would to a heterosexual man who's married, who has attraction to another woman. Restrain yourself. Hold yourself back. Because the behavior is never justified by a natural tendency. Ever. It is because of God's grace, the power of His Word, and the presence of His Spirit that we practice self-control, right? One of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you get Christian, or when you become a Christian, you do not become perfect. You become infused with the Holy Spirit and you must act upon the Spirit in your life and practice self-control. So let's be clear. The greatest problem in this text is not homosexuality. The greatest problem is found in verse 23, verse 25, and verse 28. Look at what it says. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 28, and they did not see fit to acknowledge God. That's the sin. 
He is not central. His glory is undermined. It is replaced, substituted. And you will not be able to repair your sexual disorders until you acknowledge God as your creator, your king, and your savior. You see, knowing God is the first step to ordering our steps. Knowing God is the first step to change. And not just knowing God, but knowing about God. Knowing Him through His truth, not through your feelings, not through your emotions, not through your experiences, not by how you want Scripture to tell you about who God is. It's not eisegesis, it's exegesis. We learn about God through the truth of Scripture. We let the Scripture inform us about who God is, and we are transformed by that truth. We are sanctified by that truth. Now, here's a good question. And it's not just good because I'm asking it, it's just a good question. Why then is homosexuality the focus of Paul's thesis in presenting the judgment of God against man's depravity? It's a good question. Why is homosexuality kind of the center here of this text? I'm going to give you the answer. Because Paul wrote another epistle. It was the epistle of Ephesians. And in Ephesians, there's a chapter, chapter 5, where Paul is talking about the husband and the wife and juxtaposes the view of the husband and wife with God's relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. Listen to what Ephesians 5, 31-32 says. says, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's just got through talking about the husband and the wife, the husband and the wife, the husband and the wife, how you treat each other, how you love each other. This is the ideal relationship, a man and a woman married in the eyes of God, living out the teachings of Christ with the husband loving his wife like Christ loves the church, with the woman, with the wife respecting her husband as unto the Lord. And then we see this, this is a mystery. It is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. You see, from the beginning, manhood and womanhood existed to represent the relationship between God and his people through a covenantal and sexual union. And when describing the relationship that exists, Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. That's why we refer to the church as she and her. Christ is he, there is a design in which God gave from the very beginning in which represents His very relationship with His people, the church. Ephesians 5 is God's expression of the beauty of worship, doing it in the right ordering of our sexual lives. And there is nothing, nothing that demonstrates a more distorted view of God's relationship with His people than homosexuality. Homosexuality is both a vivid form of breakdown between God and His people and also a display of defiance of God's glory. It is the saying, God, I don't care what you think. It is a defiance. I don't care what you say. So why did Paul use it? Because it's the most extreme form of perversion in relationships. 
It's not the only form, but we do see it as an extreme form. Now then, let me say something in closing here. To those of us who understand and believe Scripture, but we do have homosexual friends, we have homosexual relatives, this is the time of season where your family gets together and maybe you will be getting together with family members, maybe you already have at Thanksgiving and maybe you will be for Christmas or maybe just in public, in general, at the workplace, your co-workers. How do we deal with the society, the culture we live in? Well, let me say this. First of all, we need to have clear convictions about homosexual behavior as presented in Scripture. But we need to have compassion for those with homosexual desires. It should not be your desire, my desire, or this church's desire to drive those who have homosexual desires away. Some of you are parents, you have children. Your children are going to be learning about this way sooner than you did. It's in the schools. They're going to have teachers who are homosexual. They're going to have events that are going to promote homosexuality. And folks, if you think that your children are insulated because they go to a Christian school, you better think again. It is on their phones. It is in every single platform. And you might have to confront this in your own family. And when you do, you better understand compassion. You better understand compassion. What do you mean compassion? What are we talking about? Are we talking about acceptance? There's a very big difference between acceptance and compassion. And we need to understand a differentiation between these terms. We need to understand how that we can both be tolerant and disagree. We need to understand these things. But let me point out a passage to you in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, because when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he mentioned fornicators, idolaters, adulterers. He's talking about heterosexual sins, effeminate, those who, uh, who are men who act as women, uh, homosexuals, uh, or women who act as men, uh, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revelers, and swindlers. And then he said this in verse 11, and such were some of you. Who's he talking to? The church. People like you sitting in the pew. And you sit here and you sit there and think, you know what? I don't have struggles with homosexuality. I just think that's a perversion. I think that's bad. I think it's awful. Let me tell you something. There was something in that list that you could identify with. And that's who you were. So you better have as much compassion towards somebody who's struggling with homosexual sins as somebody who may be like you who's struggling with some form of idolatry or went through adultery. You'd be compassionate with yourself. Be compassionate with others. Maybe we don't all struggle with the same sins and the same bends. We're not all bent toward the same struggles in those particular areas. So sometimes it might be hard to relate. But you don't have to relate to somebody to be compassionate toward them. So be compassionate. We need to always remember who we were. God saved you. He forgave you and He reordered and He still is reordering your life. 
And I want us to be a church like that. I want us to be a church where we are just justified sinners battling together to walk with purity while all, the, all our differing tendencies and disorders, we're seeking to glorify God. That's the center of our desire. We want to give Him glory. And when that glory is central, everything revolves around that. The second thing is this. We need to speak the truth, but you need to speak the truth in love. We need to be okay disagreeing with the LGBTQ plus community and at the same time loving them who are in that lifestyle. That sounds like such an impossible thing today. And by the way, I believe it primarily is, but it's only impossible on the other side of the aisle. I have been told, because I disagree, I'm a hater. Because I disagree, I hate. Folks, there couldn't be anything more further for the truth, else I would hate my wife. Me and her disagree on a lot of things. She disagrees with me on a lot of things. But man, I love that woman. My love for her has nothing to do with whether or not I agree with her on every single thing. And that is true for every single one of us. We may not all agree on every single thing, but agreement does not define love. You know ultimately how love is defined? By how willing we are to tell the truth. How willing we are to tell the truth. And we need to be tell, able to tell the truth and to tell it in love. Understanding that this individual who is acting out, perhaps things that might repulse you, things that you struggle with, things that you have never been around, things that you didn't even speak about when you were younger, things that are so grotesque to you, you need to understand that individual was created in the image of God. And you have been called by God to love them, regardless of whether or not you agree with them. And there's a big difference between that and accepting. We must not accept the behavior. We must not accept the lifestyle. We must, when we go to vote, we must vote according to what is best for society, what is best for our culture as a whole, what is best for our children, what is best for our grandchildren. And folks, I'm telling you right now, allowing people to live and act out the desires of their heart is not what's best for society. If you look at what happened between 2000 and 2015, it is no longer today, it is no longer unreasonable today, and we should not be shocked that in the year 2023, we are talking about accepting pedophilia, that we are talking about accepting bestiality, that we are talking about allowing people to marry their AI computer, to marry a dolphin or a dog. It will not stop because it has been unrestrained by God. When we vote, we need to vote according to what is best for society. And that's not a hateful thing. That's a wonderful blessing that we have in the society. While we have it, vote and do that. But as you vote, I want to leave you with this thought. This is what one pastor said. God has not called us to win elections. He has called us to win souls. He has not called us to control Congress. He's called us to preach the gospel. He's not called us to, um, to be safe. He's called us to tell the truth. So speak the truth in love and keep the glory of God at the center of your life. And if you struggle, and there are things in your life that you struggle with. And I mean you genuinely struggle, folks. I'm going to tell you, first of all, you're not alone in struggling with sin. 
Every single one in this room struggles with some kind of sin. And for us to say we don't, we're lying. But I don't think we've made it very safe for people to be able to admit their struggles. So find somebody that you can talk to and share and work through that. But let the glory of God be your goal. Not trying to justify your behavior. Not trying to to in some way suppress anything but to seek the glory of God in your life. Because I'm telling you right now, the healing of the homosexual soul, as with every other soul, will be the return of the glory of God to its rightful place of your affection. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the truth that confronts us, challenges us, and breaks us. Help us as we talk about such a very sensitive topic that we do so with the understanding that all of us are broken by sin and are in need of the grace of God. Help us to not stand in religious piety, but to kneel with great humility at the presence of our God, trusting in You, believing in You, clinging to You for our only hope, And knowing that we have all, those of us who have professed Jesus Christ, are all coming out of sin. You are sanctifying us, you're teaching us, you're growing us, and you're helping us to learn truth according to your word. God, I pray for help this morning as we think about these issues. I pray for help for those who may struggle in these areas of their life. And I pray, Father that you will receive all the glory and all the honor. God, I pray at Calvary Baptist Church, our goal will be to make the glory of God the greatest achievement of our church, our individual lives, and collectively as a whole. Our preaching, our worship, our singing, our fellowship, our unity, everything, our giving, that will all be for your glory and for honor, that we will not seek to pray self-flesh, that we will not be prideful. We will be humble because You have saved us. Father, I pray that You would be with our country, be with our society, be with our culture, and be with our churches. I pray for pastors. Lord, if they are truly called by Your grace and appointed by You to lead a church, Lord, give them the backbone they need to speak the truth in love. Father, I pray that you will embolden church members to speak the truth in love, to be compassionate toward those that we disagree with, but not to just accept and tolerate and to allow uh, all all forms of immorality to just exist without anyone saying anything. God, fortify us. Make us bold. Help us to know it's okay to be hated just as you were. Father, I pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.